Hey everybody, on this week of the podcast, we are going to introduce secret societies at a different level than we did last time. This is part two, but we're actually going to go all the way back to the origins of secret societies and their surprising roots in connections with Islam. So it's going to be pretty cool. I think you're going to enjoy it. Uh, and uh, we're going to carry that on through as we move forward. But hey, it's time for an update. Oops, wrong one. <laughs> hey, little baby. Where are you? There we are. It's right. time for an update. <laughs> yeah, so we are nine weeks pregnant, and the baby is the size of a cherry. Yeah. So it's a, it's 0.9 inches long, and it weighs about 0.07 ounces, and it's picking up steam. <laughs> picking up steam. That's that what it says. It's starting to grow. Little baby. Uh, yeah, I don't like the way this website says it it says you've made it to month three and the baby's no longer an embryo now the baby's a fetus yeah which is it's always a baby the baby's a baby baby is a baby from day one but it does start to look like uh, a baby cool yeah so our little cherry baby it's a cherry bomb yeah and it says this is when people start telling like you start telling your work yeah you're that you're pregnant you've been you've done it you're, you're far enough along to where you're like, hey. Yeah, and you uh, got to start saving up money, it says, too. Yeah. So. <laughs> There's never enough money for that. Anyways. Yep. So there you go. Yeah. The baby is still a baby. So that's our baby. Well, it's going to be a cool episode. Yeah, it you, is. You've had your baby update. You know what's going on. So sit back, grab a coffee, and enjoy. You're listening to the All Out War Podcast. What's up, Warriors? Welcome to another episode of All Out War. I'm Turner, and I am in the studio with Rosie. What's up, Rosie? Hey, what's up, man? How you doing, man? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm doing good, man. Yeah, it's a good day. We are recording this on Father's Day. Yep. And I uh, I got a really unexpected cool gift for Father's Day from my family. Mm-hmm. I got AirPods. Yeah, I know you're not a big Apple guy. I'm not. <laughs> this has been a crazy Apple weekend for me because I my phone that I had, my I, I had an iPhone 6s and I had had it for about three and a half years or so, and it finally was like it would not hold a charge. You know the the iPhone the iPhone Achilles heel is their batteries. Yeah, they just can't they can't b- build a phone with a battery that lasts. Or hold a charge long. Yeah. I just think they're power hungry. The The device is power hungry. But uh, so the batteries stopped holding a charge real well. I mean, you'd have to basically leave it on the charger all day. And, and you like take it off. And like if I listen to like one of our podcasts, it would be at like if it was fully charged when I started, it'd be at like 40%. Oh, wow. And like that's, an, yeah, that's bad. Yeah, it's horrible. And so and my wife had the, we got our phones at the same time. So hers was doing the same thing. And uh, hers just wasn't as effective for her because of where she works she can't even bring her iphone into work like she can't bring her phone into her her yeah so it doesn't so she just leaves it in her car and uh all day but i'm on mine all mm-hmm. day so anyways we got new phones this weekend and then i didn't know it but she had purchased airpods so i have a brand new phone and airpods i mean i'm like super set up man. yeah yeah my kids are envious of me they're like dad you have a new phone and ipod airpods like what What'd you do? I'm like, I had kids. I'm a father. No, I'm just exactly. kidding. <laughs> Anyways. Yeah. 
So that was my thing. That's awesome. That was a good thing that happened, but we had some crazy stuff happen this past week. Yeah, we did. You and I both on the same day. Yeah, a couple hours apart. Yeah, and I don't know what's up with that. I I still haven't figured out if that's actually a, uh, if that was like a, I don't, I don't, I don't. Well, we'll tell the story and we'll let let the listener decide. Well, yeah. You want to tell the story? You want to start? Uh, no, we, maybe we'll just not tell the story. Well, we can just say, at least for me. So I yeah. had a weird experience on Monday, which is when you had the stuff yeah. happen. And uh, anyways, long story short, thought there was someone in the house. And I usually am not one to freak out um, very much. Yeah. Not that I'm like some super hardcore dude that doesn't get scared you know <laughs> but uh you know I, i've lived on my own for years and years and you know I, I, weird stuff happens and i'm just kind of like okay that just happened whatever yeah so anyways long story short thoughts someone was in the house and uh ended up calling the cops to uh, come check it out there was no one in the house and uh without going into all the details i definitely heard so, uh, I, the reason i say you know i i am not one to easily freak out yeah there's like there's something in the house <laughs> something was in the house. there was something for sure yeah for sure and the cops came they cleared the whole house spent like 10 minutes my dog was acting weird you know yeah. there's 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 stuff going on there and then that night yeah uh you know after that stuff happened had some weird stuff happen at night got like sleep paralysis at least three times man i just kept waking up and was you know in the in sleep paralysis and uh yeah and you know it happens to me fairly often but not like the sleep paralysis does yeah yeah there's a lot of debate about that too like what is sleep paralysis yeah um i heard a really cool podcast on that from uh, yeah paranormal not paranormal but paranormal like your peer uh, they did a whole episode on sleep paralysis. They did all these peer review studies and stuff, and uh, it's a great podcast. You, yeah. you should check it out if you get a chance. But um, did uh, did you find anything in the house that had been disturbed or anything like? Well, I don't know because the cops went. They they went through everything, so they were looking under beds, oh, opening really? up closets. Yeah. They so were if the, there was something, you wouldn't have known. Yeah. They, you know. Did, opened closets, opened all the doors. They were in there for like 10 minutes. Nothing missing at not all? That I, not that I know of. Hmm. No medicines were stolen or anything like that? No, we don't have anything. Okay. Um, but yeah, and then anyways, I, uh, I, I I hasten to say this. Yeah. Uh, but I definitely saw a full body apparition. Oh my goodness. <laughs> the same night. The same night? No, it was the next night. Yeah. Holy cow. And my alarm clock's been... Yeah, it's what real, a, there's, you texted me, yeah, but I never, I never, stuff. what happened with your alarm clock? Cause you were like, it's been going off at like 10 at night for no reason. For no reason. Do you use like an old plug in alarm clock? Yeah. Why? Why not use your phone? I do. Oh, <laughs> you set multiple alarms. Yeah. Okay. I have a lot of alarms. <laughs> You're one of those guys. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, anyway, so my phone alarm was going off at like 10 every night, hmm. turned off the alarm, unplugged it, plugged it back in. And it's not like it's like an old, yeah, digital ten dollar one from Walmart. Like, right, it's super cheap. I, my buddy gave it to me, so it's like really old. Yeah, and it's just the you know the big numbers and everything. So it's not super smart. It just sets the alarm. You unplug it, or the power goes out, and it resets it. You know, like it doesn't have memory. Yeah, 
Yeah. And uh, it just it just started like ten o'clock at night. What time was it when you saw the apparition? Uh, ten o'clock. No, <laughs> la- later than that. Like as I was going to bed. What'd you do, man? Did you rebuke it like in Jesus' name or? Yeah, yeah. I prayed a lot. Did it re- go away? Like, did it? Yeah, I just like saw it like out of the corner of my eye, mm. and I just uh, I don't know. I see a lot. Of, there's the way my room's set up. There's like a, a an area. I, I just saw, like, usually I'll just, you know, I'll be looking at somewhere and I'll see movement. Yeah. And so I'll just, you know, catch it out of the corner of my eye, something moving. Yeah. That isn't my dog or a cat or something like that. Right. And uh, this time I looked and I saw, like, a thing move to the side. <laughs> out you of just, view. You just imitated it. That, yeah. To the side. It went like that. Yeah. yeah. And I was like, well, this is happening. Wow. Wow, man. So... Well, mine wasn't nearly as sketch as that. That's really crazy. Yeah. Um, mine was pretty simple. I mean, it was like a traditional, what the, you know. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I walked into the to the to where I work, and I was the only one there in the mm-hmm. entire building. Nobody was there, and we share a building with another. There's a church that shares part of our building, and they rent out part of it, and it's like sectioned off yeah like we can't get into their section they can't get into ours um but uh i walked in first thing monday morning first one in the building and uh i'm turning on some lights and i hear a door slam so i decide well what was that so i go out and i look out in the parking lot my my car is the only car there mm-hmm. so i go back and i grab my backpack and and i got my protection out of my backpack and I decided to to just sweep the building, so I walked through the entire building. Didn't find anything. Didn't find anyone. Um, later on that morning, when other people started to arrive, I during one of our meetings, I just like in a break between the meetings, I was like, "Hey, do you guys ever like notice weird noises and stuff when you're here, like by yourself?" Because this is like the second or third time this has happened to me. And one of my coworkers, she's like, "Oh yeah, she used to clean the building." Um, with her husband Mm -hmm. and she goes it's so it got so bad occasionally that i just had to put earbuds in just to ignore it and i'm like what so we might have to take some anointing oil and just like use a mop just go go through the entire building mopping the floors and washing down but we'll only be there for another couple months so uh we're leaving that building soon so yeah but yeah i was gonna say it was interesting i talked to my sister and she has She's had weird stuff happen, like, as long as she can remember. So, I don't know. At your house. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, locations have something to do with this. Yeah. That, that's pretty key. I wonder, I'm sure, I haven't done any in-depth studying, but I'm pretty certain that there's location, certain locations that have more activity of this kind of bizarre stuff. Yeah. This paranormal. Yeah. But anyway, we chalked it up to, uh, I guess we're, on, we're, we're getting in, we're getting some... Uh, we're targets. <laughs> Getting some stuff back. We're on the highway to the danger zone. Do, 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 do. You're Goose. Or I'm Goose. You're Maverick. Maverick. Yeah. I haven't seen that movie in a long time. It's a great movie. Yeah. I don't know why I made that correlation. It's okay. <laughs> I just did. Well, you... I'm old. Yeah. Shut yeah, up. you are. Shut it. Yeah. Hey, man. What do you know? Hey. So, did you know <laughs> that there is a law? It's called the Guano Islands Act. All right. Okay. 
So it was the, the Guano Act. The Guano Islands Act was enacted in August 18, on August 18, 1856, as a United States federal law passed by Congress, so it's legit law, okay. that enables citizens of the United States to take possession of unclaimed islands containing guano deposits. <laughs> what is guano? Bird and bat poop. <laughs> Wait a second. An unclaimed island that has bird poop on it, you can claim it? That's all you need. Is it still an active law? Yes. Dude. Yeah. I so want my own island. The islands can be located anywhere so long as they are not occupied and not within the jurisdiction of another government. It also empowers the President of the United States to use, mili- use the military to protect such interests and establishes the criminal jurisdiction of the United States in these territories. So basically, dude, if you stumble onto, onto an island right, and there has to be poop on it, there has to be poop on that. That's, that's Now we know why those pirates always had a parrot on their shoulder. So they could poop on it and they could claim it in America. <laughs> go go to the bathroom, Polly. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, the cussing pirate, p- cussing parrot that pooped. Thomas Jefferson's? <laughs> yeah. Remember you were talking about yeah, the parrot? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So, uh, so if you are out there and you want to find an island and Shh. claim it in the mayor. No, that's our secret. Why didn't you just tell me that? We would have gone on a road trip down to like North Carolina and down the coast. I bet you every island in the Keys has been claimed. Oh yeah, for sure. Man. Yeah. There's gotta be one somewhere not found. And it within the jurisdiction of the United States. No, it doesn't have to be in the jurisdiction. It just doesn't have to be in the it has to not be no other country can claim it already. Yeah. So if there so if you find an undiscovered island and it can be of any size oh my God. as long as there's bird poop on it, if there's guano on it. That's but you it has to have Bird poop. The, the poop on it. Bat or bird poop. Which means it has to be within a certain space of land, you know, like distance Yeah, but from I mean, it land. could be off 50 the... Yard, 50 miles offshore. No, it could be like off the coast of Brazil. But yeah. if they don't know about it, and you can just say this is there's bird poop. Or no one's just claimed it. They just drive by it all the time on their ships and stuff, and they just never... Yeah. Dude. So there you go. So go... We need an all-out war island. Yeah. Where we can set up shop and do our recordings and set up our studio there and just get suntan, fish. Well, I think any island worth its salt by now has been claimed. So <laughs> it's going to be like... Quit killing my dream. All right. <laughs> okay. I'm a dreamer. Yeah. All right. Dude, that's cool, though. I yeah, like that. So was a good, go. That was a good did you know. Yeah. So. So if you find an island, if you're listening <laughs> to this, then claim it and let us come hang out with you. Yeah. We'll do a remote. Or don't tell us about it. Yeah. Don't because don't tell the government because then it becomes government property. Oh right. And we want it to not be government property. There you go. That's Claim right. Claim it for ourselves. Claim it for ourselves. Make sure it's got poop. Got a poop. They say this is a really crappy island you have here. <laughs> you can have it. There's so much poop. There's all doo doo everywhere. <laughs> doo doo. Guac. Dookie Island. Guamo. What did, what did you call it? Guac. Guano. Guano. Yeah, it's just a guano is just a deposit of poop oh. of Bird and bat poop. Can I? It's just bird and bat. Doesn't. Yeah. It's not any other feces. It's correct. Okay. I say I could leave a guano in my toilet every morning. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so yeah, if you you can't go on a boat and just bring a lot of Taco Bell and then go there, <laughs> and you finally hit the island and you're like, I've been waiting three days, dude, to save it. Noah was the original one. Like he sent that dove out and went and poop. <laughs> he said, "It's all mine." Whatever you find. He's just pooping everywhere. He's just... It's what, like, do you think he was just hoping? He was like, 
bird just have god please give this dove so much poop to splatter across the earth and the, as far as the east is from the west just poop over everything dove oh my gosh the earth was such a mess anyways that's why god's like i'm gonna, I'm gonna kill it off and drown them oh man uh, that you know it came back with the um the olive branch mm-hmm. which is crazy because they were like they were like as high as the mountains yeah and olive trees aren't known to grow up high but they're actually a super resilient plant a lot of people don't realize that mm-hmm. anyways <laughs> we get on these little tangents for no reason i think they're fun yeah so we had a great episode today we're going to talk about we're going to continue in our secret societies mm-hmm. and um we're gonna we have a great resource that we that wrote that you rosie you found it and we've been going through it together a little bit and um and so we're going to use that to kind of bounce off some conversation and and talk about some of these secret societies that are really some of the originators of the secret societies and how kind of they came about. And we didn't really go over this too much in our last time. We just went over some of the like thousand foot view mm-hmm. of some of the more well known. And we will actually dig deeper into some of those, um, you know, a little bit later on. Yeah. But this book has a lot of, uh, good stuff about secret societies that you've, you, uh, you probably never heard of these. Yeah. And you'll know this. I, I, I kind of knew a little bit about it, but it, it really definitely drove home. There's a popular video game that that's out called Assassin's Creed. Yeah. And Assassin's Creed is based off of secret society. Yeah. And when you if you've played the game, I've played it a little bit. I don't know if you have you played it yeah, much. Yeah. yeah. I haven't played it a whole lot. I played we have it, but I just haven't spent time with it. Um but uh when I'm reading through this first couple that we're going to go through tonight, uh it reminded me mm-hmm. like of like I wonder if the game was pulled out of some of this stuff or if it was off like directly off of this you know particular secret society. It might have been, you know, cuz I don't know. Maybe they did. Well, there's one thing that I learned about, and I'll just read it right now. We'll go at the beginning, but I just want to read this in relation to that. Yeah. Like this one line that I read about, which was really interesting. It said, uh, it said that, uh, uh, hold on one second. Let me look here. Uh, so it's connected to Muslims. Yeah. And, uh, and it was talking about how, this particular creed of Muslims were um, uh, basically, I'll have to find it. I can't find it right now, but uh, basically they were, uh, they were assassins and they, Oh, here it is. It says the assassins carried on in the battle on two fronts against the crusaders. They fought whichever side in the crusades served their purposes. So they were either fighting with the Muslims or against the Muslims. Mm -hmm. And it says they fought for whoever served their purposes. And at the same time, they continued the struggle against the Persians. So uh, we're talking about the assassins, which is what we're going to, we're going to start off with, which is a, the beginning of the origins of a group called the assassins, but they have a different name as well, but they are assassins. Yeah. So uh, you want to, do you want to start? Do you want me to start? Yeah, I'll start. Okay, cool. Uh, Yeah. So. Uh, and so we're reading this. So it, it has, uh, it's a, it's an old book from the sixties, uh, that, like I said, I found just really randomly, uh, I've never heard it used and, before. And I've never, yeah. What's, what, what's amazing about this resource is that it's, you don't hear it quoted often. 
Never. So it's either completely wrong <laughs> all the way, but it has all these awards. Yeah. You know, it's won all these different awards, the UNESCO World Book Award and different things like that. So, yeah, the author is not a, uh, but I was going to say, I could, Oops. we could say, and I was going to say this. We don't want to say the name of the book because we don't want to give anything away. Right. We want you to listen to it. So yeah. at the end of it, we'll, we'll show you where you can buy the book. Yeah. We'll put a link in it at some point. Not at the end of, of this one. You got to listen to like all the series. Yeah. So but there is, uh, yeah, there's some, this is really interesting. And, uh, um, but I just preface this by saying it's a book and it's written as a, uh, with some narrative. Yeah. Um, and so you'll have to go with us as well. There's a lot of, um, Arab names, <laughs> so uh, we'll kill them. We'll, we'll butcher them. Yeah, we're not. But, uh, Chapter one. <laughs> I'll yeah. do those. I'll do that part. Well, no. So anyway, so yeah, these are the. Uh, they're called the assassins, or like the assassin organization, and they're also called the Ishmaelites. Yeah, Ishmaelites. So those are the important things. So, uh, sit back and enjoy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right, so two men in the year 1092 stood on the ramparts of a medieval castle called the Eagle's Nest, which is really interesting. I just thought of this quote. Hitler, mm. he had up in the Edelweiss uh, Mountains, they had the Eagle's Nest. I've been there. It's really cool. Oh, you've been there? Yeah. and That uh, was like his retreat home, wasn't it? It was, and it's on the top of this mountain where he stored, I'm pretty sure that's where he stored all the, the really valuable stuff. Mm. And when you go in the elevator, they still have the same elevator. It's all mirrored. Really? The entire thing, because he had a fear of, uh, I think Hitler was claustroph claustrophobic. Oh. So it's uh, it's like this gold brass, but you can see yourself in it. Yeah. And it's all the way around, like all the, the walls are. So you, you can, it gives... It's not like, you know, our metal ones where it's just, a you're box. stuck in yeah. there. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. And, uh. That's interesting. I didn't know. I yeah. It it's really pretty. I think it's Edelweiss. Uh, I think it's in Switzerland. Yeah. It's yeah, somewhere. In, it's in the Alps. So yeah. anyways, that's just interesting that he also called it the Eagle's Nest. Yeah. All right. So, uh, yeah. So two men in the year 1092 stood on the ramparts of a medieval castle, perched high upon the crags of the Persian mountains the personal representative of the empire, the emperor, sorry, and the veiled figure who claimed to be the incarnation of God on earth. His name was Hassan, son of Saba. He was the sheik of the mountains and the leader of the assassins. He spoke, do you see that devotee that's standing guard on yonder turret top? Watch. He made a signal. Instantly, the white robed figure threw up his hands in salute. Uh, salutation and cast himself 2000 feet into the foaming torrent, which surrounded the fortress. I have 70,000 men and women throughout Asia. Each one of them is ready to do my bidding. Can your master Malik Shah say the same? And he asked me to surrender to his sovereignty. This is your answer. Go. Such a scene may be worthy of the most exaggerated of horror films. And yet it took place in historical fact. The only quibble made by the Chronicle of the Time was that Hassan's devotees numbered only about 40,000. So a lot of people back then. Yeah. Yeah. But he was still lying. Yeah, he said 70,000. Well, only had yeah. Like 40,000. Yeah. Anyway, so. Just double his numbers. <laughs> well, people do that. Uh, how this man, Saba, came by his uncanny power 
and how his devotees struck terror into the hearts of the men from the Caspian to Egypt is one of the most extraordinary of all tales of secret societies. Today, the sect of Hashishin, called the Druggers, still... Smoking that sticky, sticky green stuff. (laughs) That's not the right word, but... (laughs) The Druggers, that's where they get the word hashish. Oh, (laughs) okay. They're called the Hashers. The 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 Hashishin. Hashishim. Yeah. Okay. I I totally missed that when I read it the first time. I like that. Yeah. Sorry. No, it's good. Uh, So today, the sect of the Druggers still exists in the form of the Ishmaelites, whose undisputed chief endowed by them with divine attributes is the Aga Khan. Like many another secret cult, the assassin organization was based upon an earlier association. In order to understand how they worked and what their objectives are, we must begin with these roots. It must be remembered that the followers of Islam in the 7th century AD split into, into two divisions. The Orthodox, who regard Muhammad as the bringer of divine inspirations, and the Shias, who consider that Ali, his successor, the fourth Imam, was more important. It is with the Shias that we are concerned here. So, just for some historical context, or nowadays, which is interesting in what you're talking about later on when they... Uh, that they were fighting with Christians and against the Persians and against, you know, whoever they wanted to. Um, so when you hear the Sunni, those are the the more orthodox. So that's where you have the split, um, just the so people know. The that, Shiite and the Sunni Muslims. Yeah, the Shiite or the Shia or... Yeah. And then the Sunni. So the... And they've been always fighting over, over each other. And this is the uh, reason why. So it, it came through from this... And the, well, not through this, but that division that I just read about. Yeah. Who is more important, basically? Who is the... So the Orthodox would believe that Muhammad was the, the successor of, or, you know, brought forth the divine inspiration. Well, I think they both... And, but, but the Shiites believe that Ali, who was like the fourth descendant from Muhammad, was more important than Muhammad. Yeah. So it was like a, it was really a divide on who who you were following who do we still follow yeah it's yeah. like some follow paul some follow apollos yeah but i follow jesus but uh, but this would be like uh like if the uh, like abraham and moses who's more no. important well yeah right no it would almost be like all right jesus is the most important we believe in, we all believe in jesus yeah one believes in paul or no one believes in jesus and then someone believes in like augustine and they put augustine on par with Jesus. On par, yeah. So that's kind of like this. So they were definitely a cult in that sense. They a cult within a, a death cult. Within a cult. <laughs> a cult. How do you have a cult within a cult? I guess it is. Yeah. yeah so. so, anyway, so that's just some uh, interesting context for people that may not understand why the and Sunnis and Shias are fighting all the time. They kill each other all the time since since thousand twenty yeah ninety two. But well, before that, also to Ali A L I is the guy's name that that they were that they believed was more important than Muhammad. Mm-hmm. Um, he, he, there were like uh, several secret sects that were devoted to him. Yeah. So. Yeah. So they were, but they're all under the, the uh, auspices. The Shia. Or the, the, under the, the umbrella, yeah, of, the umbrella Shia. of the Shia. Yeah. Okay. So from the beginning of the split in the early days of Islam, the Shias relied for survival upon secrecy, organization and initiation. Although the minority party in Islam, they believe that they could overcome the majority and eventually the whole world by superior organization and power. Mm. And so this is uh, 
I was going to say for some, <laughs> we keep stopping. We're not going to get all the way through, what we, but I'll, I'll keep it. Uh, when they, it's interesting now when you had, uh, I think, uh, Saddam Hussein, that, that's what they do all the time. You, know, you you get these minority powers get into power and they just ransack and kill everybody else. So it's always, no matter who's in power, even the minority or the majority, they're always killing each other. Yeah. But uh, yeah, just some more. Um, so yeah, to this end, they started a number of societies which practiced secret rites which, in which the personality of Ali was worshipped, and whose rank and file were trained to struggle above all for the accomplishment of world domination. One of the most successful secret societies that the Shia founded was centered around the abode of learning in Cairo, which was their training ground for, fan for fanatics who were conditioned by the most cunning methods to believe in a special divine mission. In order to do this, the original democratic Islamic ideals had to be overcome by skilled teachers acting under the orders of the Caliph of the Fatimites, which hmm. ruled Egypt at that time. I just want to say the democratic Islamic <laughs> ideas. <laughs> I, well, it's funny is like their initial way to get in is through teachers. Yeah. Sounds familiar. It does sound familiar. It's like get into the education system. The education system. Yeah, and so. Indoctrinate young. Exactly. And early. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, members were enrolled on the understanding that they were to they were to, to receive hidden power and timeless wisdom which would enable them to become as important in life as some of the teachers. And the caliph saw to it that the instructors were no ordinary men. The supreme judge was one of them, another was the commander in chief of the army, a third the minister of the court. There was no lack of applicants in any country where the highest officials of the realm formed a body of teachers, one would find the same thing. Classes were divided into study groups, some composed of men, others of women, collectively termed assemblies of wisdom. All lessons were carefully prepared, written down, and submitted to the caliph for his seal. At the end of the lecture, all pre present kissed the seal, for did the caliph not claim direct descendant from Muhammad through his son Ali and thence from Ishmael, the seventh imam? That's a question, so... They kiss him because they believe, you know, he, yeah. he is a descendant. He was the embodiment, the embodiment of divinity, far more than any Tibetan Lama ever was. You want to read some? Yeah. So, uh, so basically, they're setting up an education system to, of indoctrination to the secret society. Yeah. And so, what they're going to do is they're going to set up this education system, and they're going to devise seven degrees, or I'm sorry, nine degrees, of initiation. So that's where we get like. You, when we talked last week, we talked about there's 30, what, 30-something 30 degrees. 33 of, degrees. 30, 30, 30 degrees of Masonic, you know, um, levels of, of Masonic. Freemasonry. Freemasonry. And so on this particular, the it's actually called the Old Men of the Mountain Society, I guess is what what it's called, or at least that's what. Well, they, they called the, the Sheik uh, Hassan was the, the Old Man of the Mountain. Hassan, yeah. So he was the Old Man. So let's go over some of these. Uh it says here the real purpose was to complete was was the complete transformation of the mind of the student so that's the purpose behind these mm -hmm. degrees and it says students had to pass through nine degrees of initiation in the first the teachers threw their pupils into a state of doubt about all conventional ideas religious and political they used false analogy and every other device of argument to make it make the aspiration uh, the uh, uh, aspirant, aspirant. <laughs> Sorry, I've never even seen that word. Aspirant believe that he had been taught by 
by his previous mentors was prejudiced and capable of being uh, challenged. The effect of this, according to the Arab historian uh, Makarizi, was to cause him to learn lean upon the personality of the teacher as the only possible source of proper interpretation of facts. At, at the same time, the teachers hinted continually that formal knowledge was merely a cloak for hidden, inner, and powerful truth whose secrets would be imparted when the youth was ready to receive it. This confusion technique was carried out until the student reached the stage where he was prepared to swear a vow of blind allegiance to one or the one or other of his teachers. This oath together with certain secret signs was administered in due course and the candidate was awarded his the first degree of initiation. So first create doubt on everything that they've learned before, trust in the the guru, the teacher in front of you, and then we're gonna have rites of passage as you move through. Mm-hmm. So it's like uh it's almost like leveling up, you know. Yeah. But I mean that's a classic brainwashing technique that cults today still uses. Hundred percent. First they gotta break you down um mentally. Yeah. You know. Gotta make you doubt everything. Like uh deprogram and then reprogram. Yeah, exactly. So so that was degree one. Second degree, they took the form of initiation into the fact that the Imams successors of Muhammad, uh parentheses there, uh were the true only source of secret knowledge and power. So that they were like you gotta uh, you gotta believe this that the imams have all the secret powers. So you gotta put all your trust in them, basically. Imams inspired the, inspired the teachers. Therefore, the student was to acknowledge every saying and act of his appointed guides as blessed and divinely inspired. Wow! So they're speaking for God, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the third degree, so we're up to level three now. The esoteric names of the seven imams were revealed and the secret words by which they could be conjured and by which the powers inherent in the very rep- repetition of their names could be could be liberated and used for the individual, especially in the service of the sect. In the fourth degree, the succession of the seven mystical lawgivers and magical personalities was given to the learner. These were characterized by Adam, Noah, Abraham, Moses, Jesus, Muhammad, and Ismail. There are seven mystical helpers, Seth, Shem, Ishmael, Aaron, Simon, I'm assuming Simon is Peter, mm-hmm. Ali, and Mohammed, the son of Ishmael. This this last was dead, but he was the, Ishmael was dead, but had a mysterious deputy who was the Lord of the Time. So they have another guy named the Lord of the Time, authorized to give his instructions to the people of the truth, as the Ismailis called themselves. This hidden figure gave the caliph the power to pretend that he was acting under even higher instructions. So uh, they would have these degrees of learning through different people. Then you get to the fifth degree. It's It named the twelve apostles under the seven prophets whose names and functions and magical powers were described. In this degree, the power of influence, the power to influence others by means of personal concentration was supposed to be taught. One writer claims that this was done merely by the repetition for a period of three years to train the mind of the magical word Akzabti. <laughs> Akzabti. Akzabti. I thought it was going to say abracazabra, but uh, we're at level six. You want me to just go through the nine and then I'll hand it back over to you? Yeah. Okay. Level six, uh, to obtain the sixth degree involved instruction in the methods of analytical and destructive argument in which the pros- postulant had to pass a stiff examination. 
The seventh degree brought revelation of the great secret. The great secret, yes. Uh, that all humanity and all creation were one, and every single thing was part of the whole, which included the creative and destructive power. But as an Ismail, as an Ismaili, uh, the individual could make use of the power which was ready to be awakened within him and overcome those who knew nothing of the immense potential of the rest of humanity. This power came through the aid of the mysterious power called the Lord of the Time. To qualify for the eighth degree, the aspirant had to believe that all religion, philosophy, and the like were fraudulent. All, of them, all that mattered was the individual who could attain fulfillment only through servitude to the greatest developed power, the imam. The ninth and the last degree brought the revelation of the sect that there was so, no such thing as belief. All that mattered was action. And the only processor of the reasons for carrying out any action was the chief of the sect. So that would be your nine degrees of initiation of brainwashing. Yeah. <laughs> essentially. And what's, what's really interesting is, it, as you see, it starts off with, uh, you know, you're going to learn who these teachers are. You're going to get a little taste of this. Then you're going to, it's all, it, it's very odd that it, it it's almost very uh, Buddhist um, in the way of, the transcendence and the secrets itself. Yeah. Um, you know, like three years training the mind on the repetition of a single word. You know, that's, uh, they use it now if you go to like yoga or something like that. The om, you know, the oming. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's to clear the mind and you're focusing on this nonsensical word, um, which is demonic. That the act of clearing the mind and trying to reach a higher consciousness by only focusing on this word and i don't know this word what it means but it looks like a just the way that it's brought up yeah it's probably some nonsense thing that they're just focusing on uh basically this this sound um so yeah it's very difficult and it's uh dangerous for people to do that you know we're told to use all of our faculties you know totally to not to think rationally and critically and uh yeah so it's interesting they have these like buddhist things and then, you know, going to the seventh degree that everything is part of the whole. It's a very Buddhist thing that everything is uh, Brahman, you know, everyone is one, everything is one. And then it's interesting as you get higher up, it starts telling you that all this stuff, even that you already believed, you know, that you were taught, isn't actually true. So once you get to a high, you know, so there's someone at the seventh level and someone at the eighth level, the eighth level would say, you know, this dude doesn't even, like, wait till he gets a load of this next stuff because it's going to blow his mind even more. Yeah. So it's kind of contradictory. That that word that they were called to repeat, that uh, Aksabati or whatever it mm-hmm. is, um, who wishes to use our shade is the question mark. Then the Balakava asked, I have been instructed by the overlord to ask a favor of the Kahanakaya. So I don't even know what any of that means. It's just... <laughs> It's some. So that's what the definition of it said. It just, yeah. It's it, when you Google it, it it comes up all this. It comes up with all this Chinese things, and then and then it had like one legit like thing there. So I don't know what's going on with that. Yeah. So anyways, it's probably a nonsense word, like I was saying. Yeah. Anyways, yeah. So there you go. Uh, as you keep going up, it's interesting that you know there's only the imam. Religion is all silly. Everything's silly. Only this one person. So anyways. Um, as a secret society, I'll continue on, the organization of the Ismailis 
as outlined above, was undoubtedly powerful and seemed likely to produce a large number of devotees who would blindly obey the orders of whomever was in control of the edifice. But, as with other bodies of this kind, there were severe limitations from the point of view of effectiveness, which makes sense. Hmm. Perhaps the phase of revolt or subversion planned by the society did not get, not in the end get underway. Perhaps it was not intended to work by any other means than training the individual. Be that as it may, be, be that as it may, uh, its real success extended abroad only in uh, 1058 to Baghdad, where a member gained temporary control of Baghdad and coined money in the Egyptian caliph's name. So here they start to get power. The sultan was slain by the Turks, who now entered the picture, and the Cairo headquarters was also threatened. By 1123, the society was closed down by Vizier Afdal. The rise of Turkish power seemed to have discouraged the expansionist Cairo sect so strongly that they almost faded out, and little is heard of them after that date. It was left to Hassan, son of Saba, the old man of the mountains, to perfect the system of this ailing secret society and found an organization which has endured for nearly another 2,000 years. Hmm. So what he's hinting out there is there's st- it's still happening now in one form or another. So here we go. Who was Hassan? He was the son of a, uh, of a Shia in uh, Khorasan, a most bigoted man who claimed that his ancestors were Arabs from Kaffa. This assumption was probably due to the fact that such a lineage bolstered up claims to religious importance then as now among Muslims. So, you know, he's, he's trying to boost himself up as being um, a rightful, you know, heir. The people of the neighborhood, many of them also Shias, stated very divisively that this, that this Ali was a Persian, and so were his forebearers. It is generally thought that this is the truer version. As the governor of the province was an Orthodox Muslim, Ali spared no efforts to assume the same guise. This is considered to be completely permissible. It's called the doctrine of intelligent dissimulation, as there is no doubt to the, his reliability in the religious sense. He retired into a monastic retreat and sent his son, Hassan, to an orthodox school. The school was no ordinary one. It was a circle of dis- <clears throat> disciples. It was the circle of disciples presided over by an, an redoubtable Imam Mafwaki. <laughs> I'm sorry. About whom it is said that every individual who rolled, enrolled under him eventually rose to great power. So you get, Hassan gets sent to the school. It is here that Hassan met Omar Kayami, a tent maker, poet, and astronomer, later to be the poet laureate of Persia. Oh, wow. Big guy. Another of his schoolmates was Nizam ul Mulk rose from pre- peasanthood to become a prime minister. These three made a pact, according to Na- Nizim's autobiography, whereby whichever rose to high office first would help the others. Nizam the courtier became vizier to the Al- Al- Alp Arslan, the Turkish sultan of Persia, in a relatively short time. He helped Omar in accordance with his vow and secured him a pension which gave him a life of ease and indulgence in his beloved Nishapur where many of his rubiette poems were written. Meanwhile, Hassan remained in obscurity, wandering through the Middle East, waiting for his chance to obtain the power of which he had dreamed. Arslan the lion died and was succeeded by Malik Shah. 
Suddenly, Hassan presented himself to Nazim, demanding to be given a place at court. Delighted to fulfill his childhood vow, the vizier obtained him a favored place and relates what transpired thus in his autobiography. So he's wandering around, you know, his buddies get into power and eventually, you know, he gets into power as well from his buddy giving him a favor. Yeah. I had made him a minister by my strong and extravagant recommendations. Like his father, however, he proved to be a fraud, hypocrite, and self-seeking villain. He was so so clever at dissimulation that he appeared to be pious when he was not, and before long he had somehow completely captured the mind of the Shah. Malik Shah was young, and Hassan was trained in the Shia art of winning people over by apparent honesty, but but Nazim was still the most important man in the realm, with an impressive record of honest dealing and achievements. Hassan decided to eliminate him. You want to do some reading? Sure. So uh, Hassan's making his way up. Yeah. He's got his little foothold in the place of authority. And that his fr- childhood friend gave to him. Yeah. Because yeah. they're a little packed. That's actually not a bad idea. No. Find find kids that are going to be better than you and just be like, hey, let's make a pact. We'll help each other. And then you just ride their coattails. Yeah, exactly. If you're lazy. All right. Uh, the king had asked... In that year of 1078, for a complete accounting of the revenue and the expenditure of the empire, and Nizam told him that this would take over a year. Hassan, on the other hand, claimed that the whole work could be done in 40 days and offered to prove it. The task was assigned to him, and the accountants were prepared in the specified time. Something went wrong at this point. The balance of historical opinion holds that Nizam struck back at the last moment, saying, By Allah, this man will destroy us all unless he is rendered harmless, though I cannot kill my playmate. So he's hearkening back to his friendship there. Yeah. Whatever the truth may be, it seems that Nizam managed to have much disparities introduced into the final calligraphic, calligraphic version of the accounts. That when Hassan started to read them, they apparently they appeared so absurd that the Shia, in fury, ordered him to be exiled. Uh, as he had claimed to have written the accounts in his own hand, Hassan, who could not ju- could not justify their incredible deficiencies. Yeah. So basically, he lied. As, well, no. So Nizam, uh, the guy, the ruler, yeah, sees that um, you know so. Hassan says, I'm going to do this thing that's going to take years. I can do it in 40 days. Right. Give me all the money. Right. So then they go to get the money. <clears throat> Nazim, the guy who's in charge that knows that his friend Hassan. He's just skimming it off the top or something? No, no, no. He, he knows that he has to get rid of him. Oh. He knows that this guy's a liar. So this is what it says is that he had someone go in at the last minute and change the records. Oh, gotcha. So that Set when, him up. So that when Hassan, because he says he couldn't kill him. So Hassan goes to read it, and he's basically claiming, you know, like uh, you turn in a paper, yeah, and you, you know, someone behind your back went, someone went yeah. in and actually, uh, you know, plagiarized within that or messed something up, and you say, oh no, this is my own work, yeah, and so he he goes before the Shah and he says all this thing, and because it's in in his own handwriting that he appeared, you know, he thinks that he did it himself. The Shah is so mad at all the discrepancies and all these errors. Yeah. But he's like, you're out of here. So that's <laughs> that's what that happened. Yeah. So Hassan gets uh, kicked out. And, yeah. and it says, Hassan had friends in Isfahan, where he immediately fled. Uh, there survives a record of what he said there, which sheds interesting light upon what was in his mind. One of these friends, Abu al-Fazal, 
uh, wow, that came off really good. Yeah. Notes that Hassan, after reciting the the bitter tale of his downfall, shouted these words in a state of uncontrollable rage. If I had two, just two devotees who would stand by me, then I would cause the downfall of that Turk and that peasant. Fazal concluded that Hassan had taken leave of his senses and tried to get him out of his ugly mood. Hassan took umbrage and insisted that he was working out on a plan that would would have his revenge. He set off for Egypt and there to, he set off for Egypt there to mature his plans. Uh, so he's he's really upset yeah. and his buddy thinks he's insane and he's actually hatching a plan to go and take down the dudes that made him look stupid. Yeah. Took away his glory. Yeah. He took away my glory. Took it basically took his chance. Uh, he sees it as you know um, I was going to use my friends to get into power. Yeah. And he, has, he, you know, he has no problem killing his friends, but his friends right. are good people. And they're like, no, this guy's crazy, but we don't want to kill him. <laughs> right. So then he said, you know, so then he goes back and he's like, I'm going to build an army. I will be powerful. I'm going to destroy this guy. I'm going to take them out. Yeah. yeah so he goes to Egypt. Do you want me to keep reading? Or yeah. Want, okay. Fazal was himself later to become a devotee of the assassin chief. And Hassan, two decades later, reminded him of that day in Isf- Isfahan. Here I am at Almut, master of all I survey and more. The sultan and the peasant vizier are dead. Have I not kept my vow? Was I was I the madman you thought me to be? I found my two devotees who were necessary to my plans. Hassan himself takes takes up the story of how his fortunes fared after the flight from Persia. He had been brought up in the secret doctrines of Ismailism, Ismail. Ismailism. There we go. I'll get it right. And recognize the possibilities of the power inherent in such a system. He knew that Cairo, he he knew that in Cairo there was, were powerful nucleus of society. And if he were, if he are, and if we are to believe the words of Fazl, he already had a plan whereby he could turn his followers into disciplined devotees, devoted fanatics, willing to die for a leader. What was, what was this plan? He had decided that it was not enough to promise paradise fulfillment, eternal joy to people. He would actually show it to them, show it in the form of an artificial paradise where, where uh, Horus played and fountains gushed in scented waters, where every sensual wish was granted amid beautiful flowers, gilded pavilions, and this was what he eventually did. So he's got this plan to build a paradise to recruit people into his new army and cult and secret society. Yeah. And uh, and it's kind of crazy. Uh, it says that Hassan chose a hidden valley in the site of his paradise described by Marco Polo, who passed that way in 1271. So, you know, 100 years later or whatever. Yeah, it's still there. Marco Polo is going to go by and remark on it. So I'll just read a few, a little bit more, and then I'll let you take over here. It just says, uh, In this beautiful valley, enclosed between two lofty mountains, he had formed a luxurious garden, stored every delicious fruit and every fragrant shrub that could be procured. Palaces of various sizes and forms were, were erected in the different parts of the grounds, ornamented with works of gold, with paintings, and with furniture of rich silks. By means of small conduits contained in these buildings, streams of wine, milk, honey, and some pure water were seen to flow in every direction. So he's got—he's literally got running, running water and wine and milk yeah. and honey. You know, milk and honey is an interesting thing. 
I learned this when I was in Israel years ago. When they when the Bible talks about milk and honey, uh, this is kind of cool. It's it's goat's milk, and it's uh, date honey. So it wasn't talking about like bee honey hmm. and cow's milk. It was goat's milk, which was much more common. You know, goats are indigenous to that area, yeah. and and date honey, which is really good by the way, hmm. and it's actually probably just as good for you as regular honey. Um, you know, unless you're doing keto, yeah. then it's probably not good for you. But it's natural. Uh, date honey is amazing. They use it to cook in, and dates are really cool. They're awesome to to sweeten stuff. And anyways, that's what they were talking about. So milk and honey, baby. That's when Israel would be flowing with milk and honey yeah. when they went in uh, many years before this. So uh, it goes on to describe um, this guy's making this incredible, you know, it's this incredible place of where they would just, uh, it was like a, a valley of like just awesome. I don't know the right wording I'm tr- looking for, but you know. So uh, he's setting it up, and it so it says. Uh, uh, let me see where we are. The inhabitants of these places were elegant, beautiful, uh, and beautiful damsels, accomplished in the arts of singing, playing upon all sorts of musical instruments, dancing, and especially those of of dalliance and. Amorous allurement. <laughs> in other words, they're prostitutes. Yeah. Uh, or whatever you want to cores. Clothing and <laughs> clothed in rich dresses. They were seen continually sporting and assuming themselves in the garden in the pavilions, their female guardians being confined within doors and never allowed to appear. The object of the chief had the, the object which the chief had in view in forming a, a garden of this fascinating kind was that the Muhammad Ma, Mahome, uh, having promised to those that should obey his will in the enjoyments of paradise, uh, where every species of sensual gratification should be found in the society of beautiful nymphs, he was desire he was desirous of being of it being understood by his followers that he was also a prophet and a compeer of Mahomet. Uh, is that a different spelling of Muhammad? Yeah. Oh, is that what it is? Okay. Because yeah. it, it spells it like Muhammad in a different place in the yeah. book. Okay. So I meant to say Muhammad. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to be a fatwa on my head for saying his yeah. name wrong. Uh, and had the power of admitting to paradise such sh- such as he should choose it to favor. In order for n- that none uh, none without his license should, be, should find their way into this delicious valley, he caused a strong and impregnate Pregnable castle uh, to be erected at the opening to it, through which the entry was by a secret passage. So he created a walled-up valley, and you get to get in by a secret passage. Yeah. Uh, Hassan began to attract young men from the surrounding countryside between the ages of twelve and twenty, particularly those that had marked out as possible material for the production of killers, so potential assassins. Every day he held court, a reception at which he spoke. Of the delights of paradise, and at certain times he caused dra- uh, droughts, droughts, droughts of sporific nature to be administered to tens or dozens of youths. Uh, and when half dead with sleep, he had them conveyed on to the several palaces and apartments of the gardens. Upon awakening from this state of lethar- lethargy, their senses were struck by all the delightful objects each perceiving himself surrounded by lovely damsels, singing, playing, and attracting his regards by the most fascinating caresses, <laughs> caresses, serving him also with delicious viads and exquisite wines, 
until intoxicated with excess and enjoyment amidst actual rivers of milk and wine. He believed himself assuredly in paradise and felt an unwillingness to relinquish its delights. I guess so. When four or five days of this had passed, they were thrown once more into a state of solemnity when carried out of the garden. Upon being carried into his presence and questioned by him, this is Hassan, uh, as to where they had been, their answer was, in paradise, through the favor of your highness. And then, before the whole court, who listened to them with eager astonishment and curiosity, they gave circumstantial account of the scenes at which they had been witnessed. <clears throat> witnesses. The chief thereupon, addressing them, said, We have the assurance of our prophet that he who defends his Lord shall inherit paradise, and if you show yourself to be devoted to the obedience of any order, that happily lot, that ha- happy lot awaits you. So he basically got them high with hash. We, we'll find out that a little bit later. Yeah. Gets them high, gets them drunk, gets them sexed up, sends them into a, into a room where they're just getting sung to and massaged and fed grapes. and Well, yeah, basically he goes out into these villages steal like takes these kidnaps these kids yeah and brings them when they're half asleep and probably doped up and then they wake up and they're like oh i'm in paradise and he's like yes you are in paradise and only i can give that to you and they're like well we definitely want to go back (laughs) so he's like why wouldn't you follow me isn't that like and that's kind of like um like one of the tactics that they use for like um for uh scientology Mm -hmm. like they like promise you if you give yourself to us, we'll promise you fame and wealth and you'll have, you know, you'll get overall, you can get, you can get, they give them a taste of it too. Yeah. They give them like a, they get them a role in a movie or they'll do something to help them out. Yeah. Cause exactly. they're, they're so embedded into Hollywood. Yeah. So this is interesting. It says suicide was at first attempted by some, but the survivors were early told that only in death of, in the obedience of Hassan's orders could give them the key to the paradise. So these guys were like, this is awesome. <laughs> I want to <laughs> die right now so yeah. I can get there. I'll just, why go through all the trouble of serving this dude? I'll just take yeah. off myself. I wonder if, um, so is this, I need to, I don't know, I need to study Islamic history a little bit, but, you know, I'm always told that when, when, uh, like today, when there's a terrorist attack and they, you know, somebody, you know, commits, they martyr themselves, if you will, uh, that they have paradise waiting with 70 virgins, right? Seventy-two, like, yeah. seventy-two virgins, and isn't that the? Do you think that's where this comes from? Well, no, because Muhammad actually talked about that way earlier. Oh, did he? Okay, so that's yeah. what I'm saying. I don't know the. Yeah, so basically, what this guy is doing is because he, he he says right here, he said, "No, not under the orders of Muhammad." He said, "Only I can give them to you." Oh, so they're gotcha. already brought up in the secret teaching that this guy is the correct beyond Muhammad. Well, yeah, so he, it, he's it, the next yeah. coming. And he says, you know, I can get it if you obey me. Mm. I'm the, I can give, uh, you know, I'm the key to paradise. Yeah. So it says in the 11th century, it was not only credulous Persian peasants who would have to believe such things were true. Even among more sophisticated people, the reality of the gardens and auras of paradise were completely accepted. True, a good many Sufis preached that the garden was allegorical, but that still left more than a few people who believed that they could trust the evidence of their senses. These people are like, no, 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 it's not really. It's just an allegory. And they're like, no, we've been there. Yeah, yeah, I was there. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's real. Uh, yeah, I tasted the wine. I seen yeah. the virgins. Yeah, exactly. Although so, they're not virgins anymore, <laughs> right? Uh, an ancient art of imposture by 
Abdel Rahman of Damascus gives away another trick of Hassan's. He had a deep, narrow pit sunk into the floor of his audience chamber. <laughs> this is funny. Yeah. When one of his disciples stood in this in such a way that his head and neck were alone were visible above the floor. Around the neck was placed a circular dish in two pieces which fitted together with a hole in the middle. This gave the impression that there was a severed head on a metal plate standing on the floor. In order to make the scene more plausible, Hassan had some freshly blood, some fresh blood poured around the head on a plate. Ew. Now certain recruits were brought in. Tell them, commanded the chief, what thou hast seen. The disciple then described the delights of paradise. You have seen the head of a man who died, whom you all knew. I have reanimated with him to speak with his own tongue. <laughs> Later, the head was treacherously severed in real earnest and struck for some time somewhere that the faithful would see it. The effect of this conjuring trick plus murder increased the enthusiasm for martyrdom to the required degree. <laughs> so basically, yeah. Can you imagine being that guy? Like, okay, we have a job for you. You're going to have to stand in this hole. We're going to put a carpet over your head. And then we're going to have your head and neck sticking out around this plate with some blood. Just talk. When I ask you questions, just answer the questions. <laughs> Don't say anything else. Uh, this is an easy job. It's an easy job, you know. Yeah, do this and we'll send you one night in the paradise room or whatever, you know. And then next thing you know, his head's getting lopped off. Yeah, because they had to do it for real. They had to <laughs> right, actually prove and leave it somewhere everyone would find it. Like, no, no, yeah, it actually happened. He said what? I saw his head talking. It talked. Yeah, exactly. So, again, you start to see who this guy is. He just is, I mean, very much after Muhammad himself is just once warriors. Yeah. And, uh, you know, at the very beginning of the, when we started reading, it came off that literally he this guy, and he, there's another incident when he does it, but he just pointed at some guy. In yeah. the castle, and the guy just waved to him and jumped. Yeah. Just killed himself. Threw himself off the top of yeah. the thing. Yeah. So uh, later, uh, I remember that. There are many documented instances of the recklessness of the Fidayeen, who are the devotees of the Ishmaelis. Uh, one witness being a Westerner who was treated a century later to a similar, similar spectacle to which that had appalled the envoy of Malik Shah. Henry, Count of Champagne, reports that he was traveling in 1194 through Ishmali territory. The chief sent some persons to salute him and beg that on his return he would stop and partake of the hospitality, hospitality of the castle. The count accepted the invitation. As he returned, the great missionary advanced to meet him, showed him every mark of honor, and let him view his castles and fortresses. Having passed through several, they came at length to one of the two towers which rose to an exceeding height. <laughs> I gave it away. I didn't notice the next paragraph. <laughs> yeah. On each tower stood two sentinels clad in white. There, said the chief, pointing to them, uh, they obey me far better than the subjects of your Christians obey their Wow. These guys obey me far better than the subjects of your Christians obey their lords. And at a given signal, two of them flung themselves down and were dashed to pieces. If you wish, said he to the astonished Count, all my white ones shall do the same. The benevolent Count shrank from the proposal and candidly av avowed that no Christian prince could ever presume to look for such obedience from his subjects. When he was departing, with many valuable presents, the chief said to him meaningly, If mean by means of these trusty servants I get rid of the enemies of our society. So he said, basically, these guys... All of them will kill themselves for me. Yeah. And this is, these are the guys that don't, um, don't get any ideas. Yeah. Don't basically. get any ideas. Yeah. <clears throat> Further details of the mentality of Hassan are given in what is supposed to be an autobiographical account of his early days. 
and it is probably and it probably is in fact such because the method of his conversion does seem to follow the pattern which has been observed in fanatics of whatever religious or political persuasion he was he says reared in the belief of the divine right of the imams by his father he early met an ishmali missionary with whom he argued strenuously against the emirs uh, which is a uh, emir as the missionary yeah uh, his particular form of the creed. Then sometime later, he went through about a severe illness in which he feared to die and began to think that the Ishmali doctrine might really be the road to paradise and redemption. If he died unconverted, he might be damned. Thus it was seen that as soon as he recovered, he sought out another Ishmali propagandist, Abu Najam, and then others. Eventually he went to Egypt to study the creed at the headquarters. So that gives some more context into where he was. So he has a, he almost dies, and on his, you know, what he thinks is going to be his deathbed, he goes, you know, basically, those guys might be right, and I want to make sure that um, I do get to paradise. So that's why he actually converted in the first place, which is interesting. Yeah. So he he's he, like, I'd rather rather be safe and sorry, you know. <laughs> yeah, well, I love it. it. It's kind of funny to me because, like, it, I think it it shows, I mean, if we can break from this, but I think it yeah. shows in every human heart, there's a longing for a belonging, yeah. a place. And I think it's that whole verse in Ecclesiastes where God has placed eternity within the hearts of men. And I think that when I think about that, uh, this just kind of proves that at some level that everyone's looking for that place. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like that beacon that God's placed in every person that's like calling out. And so the right person comes around or the wrong person comes around in this situation, points them to the wrong direction. But because of that longing for eternal connection, like I just want to make it to paradise. That's what I I know. That's what I'm made for. Uh, Even though their idea of paradise and, and also too, like when I think about this, one of the reasons that this, these secret societies or these cult, it's really a cult of Islam mm-hmm. could take off is because there was a cultural, like, you know, how there's cultural Christianity today. Yeah. One of the reasons that cults in the sixties, forties, fifties, sixties and seventies really emerged and got traction is because our culture was very rooted in Christ, cultural Christianity. Yeah. So they had, they had a base to work with where people had a knowledge already, but they just were not discerning. Yeah. And I think that's the same situation here. Yeah. Where they are, what part of the world, how Islam was already, it, it, it had been about 300 years in, like, because it came around, like, with 700 AD. Yeah, 600s, yeah. Yeah. I thought it was, like, the late 600s. So, and here we are in the, what, 1000s? Yeah. So, yeah, it had been around a couple hundred years. Yeah. All right. Sorry, I didn't mean no, to no, depart there. That's cool. Just my little yeah. narrative. Uh, he was received by, with honor. So, he goes to look for the headquarters in Egypt. So he was received with honor by the caliph due to his former position at the court of Malik Shah. In order to increase his own importance, the high officials of the court made a good deal of public play of the significance of the new convert. But this fact seemed, in the end, to help Hassan more than it did them. So they're basically building this guy up. Oh, yeah, you know, this is, you know like Scientology. Oh, we got Tom Cruise. Like, oh, we got the new guy? Yeah, yeah we got Hassan. Yeah. But again, he you know he only did this for his own ends. He entered into political intrigue and was arrested, then confined in a fortress. No sooner had he entered the prison than a marionette, uh, a minaret, 
collapsed. Oh, I had a brain fart there. <laughs> and in some unexplained way, this was interpreted as an omen that Hassan was in, was in reality a divinely protected person. I love how it just says, and some for some reason they just thought, you know, because this thing collapsed, it's his fault because he's in prison at the same time. So right. it's because we imprisoned him. Yeah. So the caliph, hurriedly making Hassan a number of valuable gifts, had had him put aboard a ship sailing for northwest Africa. This gave him the funds which he was to use for setting up his paradise. And also, through some quirk of fate, the disciples whom he sought. So basically, you know... This is the backstory of how he made that paradise. Right, exactly. Yeah. So he gets, you know, he gets pissed off at his friends. He's like, I'm going to Egypt. He gets sick, you know... And, you know, this is filling in that story. And eventually, you know, he gets this money. He gets this, you know, he gets these followers. So it's kind of funny that. And I guess all along he's crafting the trade of exactly. the secret society. And he's working out all of the nine degrees. Of, yeah, in the back of his mind. Yeah. A tremendous storm blew up, terrifying <laughs> the captain, crew, and passengers alike. Prayers were held and Hassan was asked to join. He, re he refused. The storm is my doing. How can I pray that it abate? He asked. I have dedicated. I have indicated the displeasure of the Almighty. If we sink, I shall not die, for I am immortal. If you want to be saved, believe in me, and I shall subdue the winds. At first, the offer was not accepted. Presently, however, when the ship seemed to be on the point of capsizing, the desperate passion passengers came to him and swore eternal allegiance. Hassan was still calm and continued so until the storm abated. The ship was then driven onto the seacoast of Syria, where Hassan disembarked, together with two of the of the merchant passengers who became his first real disciples. It's just funny how he is so bought into it. Yeah. That he's just like, yeah, you know. I'm eternal. Well, yeah, he, he totally doesn't even, you know. I am I am the storm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. You know, pulling some Jesus analogies well, at the time. Yeah, it reminded me, too, of an Acts when the Apostle Paul was on a boat and the storms were so bad they're throwing stuff overboard they're and and he's like an angel came to me last night and told me that no one's going to die yeah so even if it breaks up you're going to live but you have to listen to me yeah but i was also thinking of that one where uh is it all the disciples are on the ship and jesus there's like that the, the storm and jesus is just asleep yeah and they're like jesus wake up and he's like don't worry about it <laughs> and he's fine you guys have no faith and he like rebukes the wind and waves yeah, and it it stops just yeah yeah, so it's funny. So he, he so he, he they they capsized, these people believe in him, he's got his first devotees. Yeah. Hassan was not ready for the fulfillment of his destiny as he saw it. For the time being he was travelling under the guise of a missionary of the Caliph in Cairo. From Aleppo he went to Baghdad seeking a headquarters where he would be safe from interference and where he yet could become powerful enough to go into Persia if the road led him traveling through the country, making converts to his ideas, which were still apparently strongly based on the secret doctrines of the Egyptian Ismalis. Everywhere he created a really devoted disciple, he bade the, everywhere he created a really devoted disciple, he bade him to stay and try to enlarge the circle of his followers. He didn't take him with him. Right. Converted people said, stay here, start converting he's, other people. He's church planting. Church planting, exactly. <laughs> Uh, these circles became hatching grounds for the production of self-sacrificers, the initiates who were drawn from the ranks of the most promising ordinary converts. Thus, it was that miniature training centers, modeled after the abode of learning, 
were in being were being in within a very few months of his return to the homeland. So they set up really quickly. Yeah. He's training things. Yeah. During his travels, a trusted lieutenant, one uh, Hussein Kahini, reported that the Iraqi district where the fortress of Alamut was situated seemed to be an ideal pr- place for proselytism. Oh my gosh. <laughs> my mouth is getting... Most of the ordinary people of that place, in fact, had been persuaded into the Ishmaeli... Ishmael... Ismailis. Ismailis. Oh my gosh. Yeah, I haven't no. read this you much want, out loud. You want, you want no, I to... can keep going. Okay. Ismaili, uh, Ish, whatever. <laughs> the only obstacle was the governor, Ali Mahdi, <laughs> who looked upon the Caliph of Baghdad as his spiritual and temporal lord. The first converts were expelled from the country. Before many months, however, there were so many Ismailis among the populace that the governor was compelled to allow them to return. So he's just building up people, just building up an army. Yeah. Uh, Hassan, though, he would not broke. Uh, uh, yeah, so he wouldn't give in. Yeah. The prospective owner of the Alamut decided to try try a trick. He offered the, the governor 3,000 pieces of gold for the amount of land which could be encompassed by the hide of an ox. So he basically says, you know, you know I'll buy this land if, you know, the skin of an ox can cover it. Yeah. And I'll give you 3,000 pieces of gold. It's a so big when, deal. Yeah. So when Mahdi agreed to such a sale, Hassan produced a skin, cut it into the fine, the thinnest possible throngs, and joined them together to form a string which encompassed the castle of Alamut. Although the governor refused to honor any such bargain, Hassan produced an order from a very, a very highly placed official of the Seljuk rulers, ordering that the fortress to be handed over to Hassan for 3,000 gold pieces. It turned out that this official himself was a secret follower of the Sheikh of the Mountain. <laughs> there you go. So he's already got people in political power at the yeah. time. Well, this is how he acquires the land. Yep. He's got so he the gold. Tried and... tricking him, and then he had his backup guy helping. Yeah, that was pretty. He's a sneaky dude. He is sneaky. This guy Hassan. Yeah. The year was AD 1090. Hassan was now ready for the next part of his plan. He attacked and routed the troops of the Emir, uh, that you know the missionary. Bit, uh, who had been placed in the governorship of the province and wielded the people of the surrounding districts into a firm band of diligent and trustworthy workers and soldiers, answerable to him alone. Within two years, the uh, the vizier Nazim al-Mulk had been stabbed in the heart by an assassin sent by Hassan, and the emperor Malik Shah, who dare send troops against him, died in grave suspicion of poison. Mm. So now he's sending... He, had his old friends killed. Mm-hmm. Hassan's revenge upon his class fellow was to make him the very first target of his reign of terror. With the king's death, the whole realm was split up into warring factions. For long, the assassins alone retained their cohesion. In under a decade, they had made themselves masters of all Persian Iraq, and, a many fo- and they had many forts throughout the empire. This they did by forays, direct attack, and the poison dagger, and and in any manner in which seemed expedient. The Orthodox religious leaders uh, pronounced one interdict after another against their doctrines, all to no effect. So the the religious leaders were like, don't listen to these people. Don't follow him. And they're like, doesn't even matter, man. Yeah, yeah. He's just killing everybody, taking power. By now, the entire loyalty of the Ishmaelis under him had been transferred from the caliph to the personality of the Sheik of the Mountains, 
who became the terror of every prince in that part of Asia, the Crusaders' chiefs included. Despite and despising fatigues, danger, and tortures, the assassins gleefully gave their lives whenever it pleased the great master, who required them either to protect himself or to carry out the mandates of death, his mandates of death. The victim having been point out, pointed out, the faithful clothed in a white tunic with a red sash, the colors of innocence and blood, went on their mission without being deterred by distance or danger. Having found the person they sought, they awaited the favorable moment for slaying him, and their daggers seldom missed, the, missed their aim. This is funny. This is interesting. Richard the Lionheart was at one time accused of having asked him, asked the Lord of the Mountain, to have Conrad of Montferrat killed, a plot which was carried out thus. Two assassins allowed themselves to be baptized and placed themselves beside him, seeming intent only on praying. But when the favorable opportunity presented itself, they stabbed him and one took refuge in the church. But hearing that the prince had been carried off still alive, he again forced himself into Montferrat's presence and stabbed him a second time and then d expired without a complaint amidst refined tortures. <laughs> so they <laughs> caught him. So he just stabbed him again. They tortured him and he died. Yeah. But he didn't even give, he didn't complain. He was completely into it. I mean, he was ready to die. Yeah. Paradise yeah. awaits my yeah. man. The order of the assassin had perfected their method of s securing the loyalty of human beings to an extent and on a scale which has seldom been par paralleled. The assassins carried on the battle on two fronts. They fought whichever side the crusade... They, <laughs> there, there you go. They fought whichever side in the crusades served their purposes. At the same time, they continued the struggle against the Persians. The son and successor of Nazim al-Mulk was laid low by an assassin dagger. The sultan, who had succeeded his father, Malik Shah, and gained power over most of his territories, was marching against them. One morning, however, he awoke with an assassin weapon struck neatly into the ground near his head. Within it was a note warning him to call off the proposed siege of Alamut. He came to terms with the assassin's powerful ruler, though he undoubtedly was. They had what amounted to a free hand in exchange for a pact by which they promised to reduce their military power. Hassan lived for 34 years after his acquisition of Alamut. On only two occasions since had he ever left his room, mm. yet he ruled in an invisible empire as great and as fearsome as any man before or since. He seemed to realize that death was almost upon him and calmly began to make plans for the perpetual continuance of the Order of the Assassins. So and, that's, uh, uh, that's kind of the story of the, the origin of the Assassins. And they were, this is the origin story of one of the really the first secret society within a culture that was carrying out these assassinations. Yeah. And uh, we could probably continue the next chapter. Um, I mean, later on, it's already a long time, but yeah. it, it, uh, it does get really interesting when it gets into more of the battles that happen. And uh, basically I do want to find this point, but go ahead and put yeah, well, what you're going to say. What I was going to say is that like, I think you touched on this earlier on. I want, I'm not positive, but you said basically a lot of what they did with the initiations, the rites, the the way that they would, um, you know, the 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 secret knowledge that was involved and how you would gain it, um, all of that was is transferable into all of these modern day secret societies that we see. Yeah, how about I read some? 
you know, apart from an army <laughs> yeah, exactly. of assassins. I was going to say, it's really interesting. It said that the word assassin itself, um, so assassin yeah. in Arabic uh, signifies guardians. Yeah. And so that's where the we get the word assassin from. Um, it says some commentators have considered this to be the true origin of the word guardians of the secrets. Mm-hmm. So basically they were the guardians of these, you know, these secrets and assassins was the name of guardians. So, and they did all these killings. Yeah. So that's where we get the word assassins from. What's funny is like all of their killings were done in advancement of the society. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, that was the only, that was the only thing that they worried themselves about was, or concerned themselves with was the advancement of the society or whatever was best for the society, for the cult, you know? Exactly. So, um, yeah, man. I mean, I think that's pretty cool to have an origin story, and then it's going to grow from this. So, you know, as we as we go through, and we're probably not going to be reading, you know, eight, ten pages of, you know, of uh, pages every time we do a, a Secret Society podcast on here. But it was. I think it was important for us to do this on the first one because it's going to give us a good groundwork of what of why things develop and how things develop. You know, the key people are hard to really, I mean, they're all these Arabic, you know, Persian people that we don't even know how to pronounce their name much more, anything about them or why they're significant, you know, historically. I did want to read, uh, I'll finish this up with uh, what the author asserts at the beginning, that they they think they've died out and everything. So I'll read a little bit about the, the end and basically some proof that this secret society of assassins um, basically <laughs> didn't die out right away. So uh, it, it says, copying each other, historians have asserted that assassinism died 600 years ago. Now and again, however, fresh facts of their continued existence still come to light. In the 18th century, an Englishman, the, council, the British council at Aleppo in Syria, was at pains to make this better known. Some authors assert, he writes, that these people were entirely extirpated, extirpated, extirpated yeah in the 13th century by the tartan but i who have lived so long in this infernal place will venture to affirm that some of their spawn still exists in the mountains that surround us Hmm. for nothing is so cruel barbarous and execrable (laughs) that is not acted and even gloried in by these cursed gordons the assassins were widely dispersed throughout asia and the rise of the thugs which is another interesting one the Thugs. secret society of assassination of India followed the Mongol invasion of Persia. So basically this other group called the Thugs did the same kind of stuff in India after these guys, after the expansion of the Persian Empire into India. And most people don't realize that in the 90s, there was another one that emerged called the Bone Thugs <laughs> in Harmony. Exactly. They were, they were in the entertainment. They were assassins of lyric, <laughs> lyrical assassins. Lyrical assassins. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it says indeed at least one of these thug recognition signals, which was Ali Ba Salam, indicates sal- salutations to Ali, the ascendant of the Prophet and the most greatly revered of all the assassins. So in India, their recognition signal is one that gives uh, a nod to Ali. A nod to Ali. The guy that started this whole thing. Exactly. Yeah. Ishmaelis, wow. not all of them recognizing the one chief residing places as far apart as Malaya. I think it's Malaysia. 
uh, East Africa and Ceylon. They would not necessarily feel that they are assassins in the same sense as the extremists who followed the old sheiks of the mountains, but at least some of them revere the descendants of the lords of Alamut to the extent of deification. The modern phase of Ismailism, whatever, dates from 1810 when the French Council at Aleppo found that the assassins in Persia recognized as their divinely inspired chief a reputed descendant of the fourth Grand Master of Alamut, who then lived at Kek, a small village before, between Esafan and Tehran. This Shah Kalawulululu, as it said, uh, was revered almost as a god and credited with the powers of working miracles the followers of Kalawulululul would, when he pared his nails, fight for the clippings in the water Ew. in which he washed because it became holy water. Um, the the sect next to appear in the to the public gaze through an odd happening. In 1866, a law case was decided in Bombay, which is in India. There is in that city a large community of commercial men as, known as the Koyas, a Persian, the record tells us. Aja Khan Melohati uh, had sent an agent to Bombay to claim for the Koyas the annual tribute due to due from them to him, and amounting to about 10,000 pounds. The claim was resisted, and the British court was appealed by the Aja Khan. Sir Joseph Arnold investigated his claim. The Aja proved his pedigree, showing that he had descended in a direct line from the fourth Grand Master of Alamut, and Sir Joseph declared it proved, and that it was further demonstrated by the trial that the Kojas were member of an ancient sect of the Assassins, to which sect that they had been converted 400 years before by an Ishmaelite missionary who composed a work which was remained in the sacred book of the Kojas. This is interesting, too. In the first Afghan war, the then Aja Khan contributed a force of light cavalry to the British forces. For this, he was awarded a pension, says Hidi in his uh, book, History of the Arabs, notes that the assassin sect known as the Kojas and the Mawas gave over a tenth of their revenue to the Aja Khan, who spends most of his time as a sportsman between Paris and London. And I really like this last paragraph as to why we're even talking about these guys, because it's not really, you know, upon hearing, you're like, ah, that's kind of whatever. The influence of this new form of organization and training, as well as initiary techniques of the assassins, upon later societies has been remarked by a number of students. So they're talking about the organization and the training and the ways of initiation from these first guys. It says that the crusaders knew a good deal about the Ishmaelis is shown from the detailed descriptions of them which survive. S. Amir Ali, an, Ori <laughs> an Asian of considerable repute, <laughs> goes further in his assessment. From the Ishmaelis, the crusaders borrowed their conception which led to the formation of all of the secret societies, religious and secular, of Europe. The institutions of the Templars and the Hospitallers, the Society of Jesus, which is the, uh, the Jesuits, founded by Ignatius Loyola, composed of a body of men who, whose devotion to their cause can hardly be surpassed in our time. The ferocious Dominicans and the milder Franciscans may all be traced either to Cairo or to Alamot. 
Hmm. The Knights Templar, especially with their system of grand masters, grand priors, and religious devotees, and their degrees of initiation, bear the strongest analogy to the Eastern Ishmaelis. Ishmaelis, whatever it is. Ismailis. So that's kind of really interesting that these, again, these guys that started out in, uh, you know, in the desert in Syria and Egypt, taking this, um, this sect of Islam, yeah, making it into a cult, eventually spread. You know, they helped the Crusaders, and the Crusaders, when they go back to France or England or you know all those places, they take, they worked with these assassins and so basically these guys are super important to kind of sum it up because they set the structure and the they set the bar for what a secret society you know should look like they give the template for all other secret societies yeah and they spread so far back in that time period and what's amazing is so it comes from the middle east into europe because the europeans take it back after the crusades and then Europe sends it, <laughs> exports it to America. So like every couple hundred years, it makes a leap across a new culture, a new continent. Yeah. And now you have the version of it is today is very different than what it was back then. But it was extremely, it was related to money and power, always money and power. So what was Hassan's deal? He, he wanted to be in power, mm-hmm. right? It goes all the way back to the original deal with his two friends. If one of you guys gets into power, then, you know, We'll help me out, you know, whatever, and then it it carries on from there. So it's just kind of funny how that's how it's always connected to power and money. Yeah. You know, that mm-hmm. phrase, they always say, follow the money, right? You can figure out what's going on. Mm-hmm. So Alamut is the place, right? That, yeah. The place, um, yeah, that's cool. Where, where is that, like in modern-day Iraq, I wonder? I wonder where that is. Uh, it's in Syria. Syria, is it? Yeah. Okay. That's cool. I'll have to see if I can find it. If <laughs> we can find the palace. Well, I just would like to know what what it looks like, where yeah. it is, you know. Um, but uh, anyways, cool, man. Well, that's cool. We got a, So we got a baseline now to build off of mm-hmm. and see how it's going to evolve into where it's going to evolve and, and all that through the, through the rest of this this cool reference book. Man, that's awesome. Yep. Well, yeah. So you have been initiated to the first degree of secret societies through the All Out War podcast. <laughs> oh, man. Anything else you want to touch on? No, nah, man. That's it. Yeah? Yeah. Cool. So, yeah. I, I thought, I. well, this is our podcast. So we get to talk about whatever we want. We can. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> yeah. I thought this was really fascinating. And I had heard about the assassins um, actually in a terrorism class. Oh, wow. Um, back but yeah so they're they're real deal yeah 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 it's kind of crazy you can see the the teachings fitting like how they kind of adapted like where they pulled from to put their weird theology together or whatever you want to call it their belief system yeah but uh it's also just you know it, it was a death cult he had these people completely brainwashed to the point that they would commit suicide anytime yeah um, and what's also t- interesting too is like those seven, those nine degrees that he had that he had them go through originally, that those nine degrees, um, the way they dismantle 
every other like solid belief system like oh we're gonna lump abraham moses jesus peter muhammad everybody into the same same boat yeah and we're gonna label it all as they had secret knowledge and they were just on the higher plane which you're trying to get to and that's what made them special yeah and take away you know really the the reason that they were what they were and yeah. the impact that they had. Yeah. Cause I mean, then how evil it, that is. it goes on, it takes away, there's no religion. Right. And then there's no thought. It's only action. Right. And then it's not even action, your own action. It's the action of the Imam. It's a cause. The Sheik of the mountain. Yeah. It's whatever he wants. Yeah. That's the only thing that matters. That, yeah. So, yeah. Gosh. They perfected, uh, and he started it. Brainwashing. Yeah. Yeah. It's insane. Just like Muhammad did. Muhammad did a lot of the same. You look back in the origins um, of oh. Islam itself. Uh, he, he, look at the call to prayer. The fact that you have to do that. Yeah. Um, what, five times a day or something? Yeah. But they all the fact that they also blow the sound music. And he would, he, Muhammad did this all the time in his camps. They would just blast music and sound um, of just prayers and prayers and prayers and prayers. And so the most devoted you'd pray all the time. Yeah. And the use of sound in this very audible, the auditory way, uh, Jim Jones did that at Jonestown. They just had speakers of him talking and that's what Muhammad did too. They were just not tapes of him, but they would just be <laughs> right. playing these prayers and saying how awesome Muhammad is inside his own just reciting them. Yeah. Yeah. Inside his own thing. And that's what Jim Jones did at Jonestown and got, you know, yeah. We, I mean, most people, I think, know what happened there. Drink the Kool Aid, baby. Yeah. Even though now has come out, there's some crazy conspiracies if you want to go into that. Yeah. Maybe uh, another time. <laughs> yeah. But uh, I was going to say, yeah, most of them were probably murdered. There's, there wasn't many that actually drank the Kool Aid. Oh, murdered. Yeah. 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 They, I've heard about that too. Yeah. They just came and there was like needle marks on them or they were shot in the head. <laughs> right. Yeah. So, uh, forced it through a yeah but the uh the techniques coming out of islam have been used uh ever since which came out of satan (laughs) so there (laughs) you go original all right well this has been another episode of all our war we are so thankful you stuck it out hope you learned something and watch out for those secret societies they're coming after you we'll catch you next time on all our war see ya Thanks for listening to the All Out War podcast today. We hope you enjoyed the episode. If you want to know more, you can visit us on the web at alloutwar.us or you can find us on Twitter at alloutwarcast. Hey, thanks again for listening and we'll catch you next time.